Well, good evening. Here we are going to be starting the second part of our Moral Life presentation. We're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments, also known as the Ten Words, which have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's important to kind of place the Ten Commandments in the context of the gospel story of the rich young man. The rich young man approaches Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to attain eternal life? The rich young man in sacred scripture is unnamed because he stands for every man and woman. He's asking the most important question and it's a question that, that all of us have asked at some point in our life. It's a question that connects how I live here for where I will live in eternity. What must I do to attain eternal life? And the rich young man is really connecting for us this belief that there is a connection between how I live and where I will live forever and eternally. When the rich young man approaches Jesus and calls him good, Jesus responds in an interesting way. He says to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. It's as if Jesus is saying, only God can answer the question that you have placed before me. And then Jesus answers the question. You see, Jesus is revealing to the rich young man and to you and I, because sacred scripture is a living word, who he is, that he is God. And he is the one who can tell us is there a connection between how we live and where we will live? Or is it just about believing that, yes, in fact, Jesus is God? Okay, so I accept that, so I guess I'm going to heaven, right? Well, actually, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not say to the rich young man, don't worry about what you do, just believe in me. But before he even answers the rich young man, he is in this statement about God being good, kind of directing the rich young man to focus on his source, who is God. Because only God can really give us the power to live the way we're called to live. And so in this sense, Jesus is, is kind of pointing out the two dimensions of the Ten Commandments, that the first three are directed towards God, who is our source of life and power to live as we're called to. And then the second seven commandments are oriented to love of neighbor because the only concrete way that we can truly love God as I've said is through love of one another and so Jesus is pointing this out in the story of the rich young man look to God look to God first he has all the answers and he will give you the power to live out the next seven commandments, which are about love of neighbor. And so after Jesus reorients the rich young man to the first three commandments, the goodness of God, then he says, okay, the next thing you need to do is to follow the commandments. And the rich young man looks at Jesus and he says, I've done this since I'm a kid. I'm a good Jew. I've, I've followed the commandments since I'm a kid. But he knows in his questioning of Jesus that there must be something more to the moral life, to attaining heaven. And he sees that something more in how Jesus lives and loves. And so 
he says, you know, I've done all this. There's got to be something more. And I see that something more in you. And so Jesus says to the rich young man, okay, well, if you wish to be perfect, not if you are perfect, not if you think you have perfect understanding, but if you wish to be perfect, then sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. And so Jesus is, is really giving very concrete, concrete instructions to this rich young man to what he must do to attain eternal life. So what we're called to, you guys, is, is, is you know, complete obedience to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to go through each of those. But then he says, if you wish to be perfect, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. So what is Jesus saying? Well, this is the deal. Jesus is God, and he's speaking to this particular young man who struggles with attachment to his stuff. And so Jesus is addressing personally what this rich young man's obstacle is to a deeper walk with Christ, a deeper walk with God, an attainment of eternal life. And he's saying the same thing to us. He's saying, what is your obstacle to me? I mean, only you and I know what our personal obstacles to a deeper walk with Christ is. Now God knows too, so we could ask him to make it more clear to us. What is keeping us from a deeper walk with Jesus Christ? The story of the rich young man is an important story. It's in all three synoptic gospels and that, that's always a, a great clue to us that Jesus wants us to hear this gospel every year. You know, we have three different years of readings in the Catholic tradition. We have year A, B, and C. And so those are the gospels that we read for that particular year. So with this particular gospel, we are always gonna hear the story of the rich young man. That's how important it is to Jesus that we hear this story. Now the rich young man on hearing what he must do to attain eternal life walks away sadly. And he does so because he's very attached to his stuff and he can't imagine his life without it. We don't really hear what happens to the rich young man because you know he may have gotten to a certain point in his life and, and figured, you know what? I'm just not happy with this stuff. Like, I need something more. I mean, stuff is not bad in and of itself, but if it becomes our God, then it's problematic. And so maybe at some point in the rich young man's life, he recognized that he needs God more than he needs his stuff, that he has an infinite space within him, and these finite things just don't do the, do the deed, right? And so my hope is that that happened for him. It certainly happened for me. And my prayer is that if it hasn't already happened for you, that it will. That we recognize that we need to rid ourselves of the stuff that keeps us from a deeper walk with Christ. In fact, it's interesting because the rich young man is such an example of, of our own lives. But when Jesus turns to the apostles after the rich young man walks away sadly, he says to the apostles, it's more difficult for a man, a rich young man, a man attached to his possessions to enter into heaven. It's, it's more difficult for that to happen than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
Now his apostles are overwhelmed and they're like, well, gosh, Jesus, if, if a rich young man can't do it, somebody who has all the resources, the connections, the power, if he can't do it, then who can? And Jesus says the most important thing. He says, for man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we can't get to God on our own. We need God. We need his life, his power. We need the sacraments. We need his grace in order to love the way we're supposed to love. Okay, so that's the context for which we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments literally mean, the word Decalogue literally means ten words. God revealed these ten words to his people on the holy mountain. They were written with the finger of God. They are preeminently the words of God. They are handed on to us in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Jesus reveals the full meaning of the Ten Commandments in the New Covenant. And so man's moral life finds its meaning in and through the covenant. So it's about relationship, right? So Jesus, or excuse me, God doesn't give the people the Ten Commandments until after he has freed them from slavery in Egypt, until he has fed them with manna in the desert. So a relationship precedes a giving of the law. God already has proved himself to be a loving, generous, and good God. And now he gives them the commandments in order for them to be able to stay his people. This is the way that you can remain my people. And so the gift of the commandments was really a gift of, of God himself and his holy will. In making his will known, God reveals himself to his people. He basically says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how you will remain my people. The 10 words bring essential light to man's duties. It's a privileged expression of the natural law. Infidelity to scripture and in conformity with the example of Jesus, the church has acknowledged the important importance and the significance of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments state what is required in the love of God and love of neighbor. The first three concern love of God and the other seven focus on love of neighbor. This is where we struggle the most, right? The Ten Commandments are obligatory on our part. They're not optional. They're not the Ten Suggestions. Why? Why are they why are they obligatory? So that man may obtain salvation through faith, through baptism, and observance of the commandments. The commandments are an organic unity. To transgress one of them is to infringe on all the others. One cannot honor another person without honoring God. One cannot authentically worship God without loving all men. And so the Decalogue brings man's social and religious life into unity. A full explanation of the Decalogue becomes necessary after sin because although these Ten Commandments are accessible to reason alone, our reason has been obscured and our will has gone astray. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him is the one who will bear much fruit. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. So let's start with the first commandment. What is the first commandment? The first commandment says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's a reminder to us that we are to embrace faith, hope, and charity. These are gifts that have been given to us in and through our baptism. And so he has loved us first in this gift of faith, hope, and love. And the first commandment is just a response to everything he's already done for us. And so in the first commandment, we provide an explicit response of love that we are called to. It's a reminder to us of what he's already done for us. There will never be another God. And once we know him, we know that there's nothing unlovable about this all-loving, all-giving, all-merciful God. And so this obedience of faith, which St. Paul speaks about, this is our first obligation. All moral devi deviation, all moral deviation is due to an ignorance of God. Our duty toward God is to believe in him, to bear witness to him. And we must therefore nourish and protect our faith and reject everything that is opposed to it. The first commandment speaks about not having other gods before the one true God. And I think it's so important to recognize that sometimes we're forgetful of God. This is very prevalent today. It was prevalent in the old covenant too. It's what caused the first sin. He is our source. And so God provides the framework for us to live fully and happily in him. He's the one through whom we have our very being. And so if you look at the negations of faith, hope, and love, they include ignorance of God as the principal reason for everything that we have. And so we, we must nourish and protect our faith. Hope. We can't respond on our own. Hope is a confident expectation of divine blessing. Hope is a fear of offending God's love. And so we hope in him, we trust him. Offenses against charity are things like indifference, ingratitude, lukewarmness. Do we remember that God has given us everything? And when we do, we, we, the only re adequate response is, is gratitude, right? And so how do we serve him? If, if he's first in our life, then we adore him, we worship him, we spend time in prayer with him, and we provide sacrifice in how we live our life. Because if we really love God, we're gonna sacrifice our time to spend time in prayer with him. We're gonna sacrifice material goods so that we can support his church. We are going to you know, sacrifice maybe some pleasurable activities in deference to the Lord. And so outward sacrifice must be the expression of spiritual sacrifice to be genuine. The only perfect sacrifice that has been given is Christ. But we're called to unite ourselves with him by making our life a sacrifice to him.
all of these practices remind us that we're ultimately made to worship. So if you look on this, this slide on page eight, we see that these are offenses against the first commandment, superstition, idolatry, magic, irreligion, and atheism. All of these practices remind us that we're ultimately made to worship. But if we're not worshiping God, we will worship something else because that's what we're made for. Superstition, horoscopes, magic, they place our faith and hope in something other than God. Idolatry, polytheism. Idolatry is when we worship something other than God like possessions or power or work. Polytheism says we have many of these gods. Man should neither believe in or venerate other divinities, including a constant temptation to faith. Whatever man reveres, man places in place of God. A material good, power, pleasure, state, money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. What's irreligion? Irreligion is harboring doubt about his love his providence, and his power. So we, we say we're a Christian, but we really are trying to take control by taking things into our own hands and, and, and doing things our way instead of the way that, that God may have called us to do them. You know, maybe we, you know, we really want a baby, but we've been struggling with getting pregnant. We decide I'm going to do in vitro fertilization, regardless of what the church has said about it. And so we place our desires in front of God's law. Sacrilege would mean treating an object of reverence without honor, treating it unworthily, such as the Eucharist. You know, when people receive the Eucharist without being Catholic or being in mortal sin, this is treating the Eucharist irreverently. It's not being in a state of grace in order to receive the Eucharist. If someone takes a cross or a holy object and, and smashes it or throws it in the garbage, that is sacrilege. What is euthanism? Yeah, I'm sorry, atheism. I, I'm just gonna say atheistic humanism and I said humanism. Atheistic humanism or practical um, atheism, what is that? That means that man considers himself to be an end in himself, that he's the sole maker and control of his own history. So as a, as a being, we are an end, right? We're made for God. But we consider that we're in control of our own history, that we're the sole maker and controller of our own history. And so humanistic atheism says progress is the answer. And that's not really true. The answer is not progress. The answer is Jesus Christ. Rejection of God is a sin against the virtue of religion. And that's really what atheism does. It, it rejects God as being the all-powerful, almighty authority. This, of course, sometimes can be mitigated by circumstances. Some people are are brought up in this idea that, you know, God doesn't really exist. And so they're taught this by people who should be teaching them differently. You know, the parent, parents that have, have been entrusted with the care of these children. And so oftentimes people are really brought up with a very um, poor understanding um, 
who God is. And so this can be mitigated when we reject God. Agnosticism says, I don't really know if God exists. I don't know if I should embrace him or I should reject him. It's impossible to prove it. It's impossible even to deny it. And so that's what an agnostic is. And all of these things are offenses against the first commandment. How about the second commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This really tells us that God's name must always be respected. It is holy. It governs the use of our speech in sacred matters. A respect for the name is an expression of the respect owed to the mystery of God himself and the whole sacred reality. This commandment forbids the abuse of God's name. It, it really forbids the making of oaths in God's name. Like, I swear to God, I didn't lie. I swear to God, I didn't kill that person, right? We don't, we'd never use God's name in those kinds of unholy circumstances, even to make an oath. Promises made in his name engage the divine honor, fidelity, and authority of God. Blasphemy is an offense against the second commandment. It's an utterance against God. And this blasphemy extends to the church, saints, and sacred things. The Lord's name sanctifies man. We say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the Lord's name itself sanctifies man. That's why the name of Jesus can be used to, to keep the devil away. In the name of Jesus, get out of my sight. Names should communicate a Christian sentiment. God calls each of us by our name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is an icon of the person. Our name is our name for eternity. The third commandment calls us to remember the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day recalls the holiness of creation, what we're made for. It recalls the holiness of the Sabbath. God entrusted the Israelites to keep the Sabbath as a sign of the internal, eternal covenant with God. God's action is a model for human action. And so, number one, this is the sign of the irrevocable covenant with God and man. Number two, God rested on the Sabbath day. We're called to do the same in order to worship well and in order to be refreshed or recreated in Christ. It's a day set aside to protest against the servitude of work and the worship of money. The eighth day, that is the day after the Sabbath, that is Sunday, because the Sabbath was in the Old Covenant Saturday, right? The eighth day, the fathers of the church call Sunday, really the first day, or the Son's Day, S-O-N, the Son's Day. It is the day of our Lord's resurrection, and it becomes the first of all days. It is the day of the new creation. I'm going to say that again. So the Sabbath day was traditionally Saturday for the Jew, and it still is for the Orthodox Jew. The Sabbath day is Saturday. 
but the early church fathers said that Sunday has become the eighth day, which is really the first day, or the Son's Day, S-O-N, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the day of our Lord's resurrection, and it becomes the first of all days. It is the day of the new creation. Sunday is the heart of the church's life because it is on this day that the Eucharist is celebrated and received. Foremost, it is the foremost holy day of obligation in the universal church. And to forgo this obligation is to commit a grave sin without serious reason. On Sunday, we really should refrain from work that hinders worship owed to God. And we, we should restrain from keeping others from worship of God. So when we, you know, go out to eat or when we go shopping, you know, these are folks that, that have to work to serve us. And so we too keep them from worshiping God. I'm going to go ahead and stop here because my battery is running low and I don't want to waste this first part of our presentation. And I'm going to do a separate um, recording for the last seven commandments.